good morning, everybody. Uh, and a very, very warm welcome uh, to you all, uh, those of you uh, in the building upstairs and downstairs, and those of you who are watching online. Uh, it's fabulous uh, to have you with us uh, this morning uh, for this, our act of worship. Uh, we are uh, continuing our series uh, today. Neil is uh, going to be preaching on John 19, uh, looking at the sentence, uh, Christ's uh, trial uh, and the way that uh, he is sentenced and we're set free. So looking forward to Neil uh, opening that up uh, for us. Now, it's probably been quite a chaotic morning. Someone's already confessed to me that they overslept and had to rush in today. Um, so let's just uh, take a moment. We've probably got lots of things uh, whizzing around in our minds. Let's just take a moment now uh, just to stop, to pause, uh, to lay those distractions down. So let's just uh, close our eyes, uh, maybe bow our heads. Uh, take those distractions, uh, the busyness uh, of the week just gone and uh, all the things that lie ahead, uh, the, the Sunday lunch, uh, the, uh, the children, uh, the grandparents, the parents. Now just put them down. And just steady our hearts. Ready them. That as we journey through the service this morning, that our hearts might be expectant uh, that the Lord would speak to us by his spirit and through his word. As we sing songs and as we come before him to pray. So be at work in our hearts, we pray. Amen. Uh, we're now going to uh, turn to prayer, and in a moment, Sheila's going to come up and lead us in our prayers. Uh, after that, uh, Thelma will read for us from John 19, and then Neil will open that passage up for us. So, Sheila, can I invite you to come and lead us in our prayers? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful world you created and for the signs of spring that we see around us which lift our hearts and point to you. Thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you know each of us intimately and that you have a plan and purpose for our lives. We thank you for friends, family, employment and all good things that come from you. Thank you for LCBC and the blessing we enjoy in being able to share Christian life together and we are grateful that we can meet without fear of persecution. However, we know that worldwide there are many Christians who are killed or imprisoned for their faith. We bring before you our brothers and sisters in North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran... Afghanistan, Sudan, and many other places, and pray that in your infinite mercy, you will protect them. We also pray a blessing on all missionaries who have chosen to dedicate their lives to sharing the gospel with those in other countries. We remember Ukraine and pray for all those suffering there. We ask for a swift end to this war. 
with Ukraine once again fully in control of all its territory. Lord, I thank you that you've promised to provide for all our needs, and we pray particularly at this time for those suffering economic hardship. We pray for all those who are physically or mentally ill, those who are bereaved, and those who are suffering from addiction. May you bring your light into their darkness with healing. Father, we ask you to forgive us for the times that we have fallen short of your will for our lives. Forgive us for the wrongs we have done and also for the times that we should have acted but chose not to. Give us the strength also, we pray, to forgive those who have wronged us and please protect us from temptation and every kind of evil. Lord, we pray for the pastors and elders in this church that they would walk closely with you. Please give them the gift of discernment in order that they may lead the church well. We pray for children and young people, both in this church and beyond. May they come to know you for themselves and love you deeply. Bless the many activities that take place in LCBC during the week. And we pray that these will be a way for others to experience you. In particular, we pray for the journey to Easter events as we seek to share the story of your death and resurrection with those who do not yet believe. And we pray for ourselves that we may be reminded again of the huge price you paid on the cross in order that we could experience the amazing joy of your resurrection. Father, as we move on to the rest of the service, we pray for your anointing on Thelma and Neil, that we may hear you speak to us through them. Lastly, thank you, Father, that you have promised to go before us and be with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us for the whole of our lives. Amen. Our reading today is from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Jesus sent sentence to be crucified. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, 
We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Thanks very much, Farmer. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Father, we do pray now as we look at your word together that we would know Christ and we would know the forgiveness and the life and the freedom that he offers. In his name we pray. Amen. I'm sure at some stage in our lives we have all been a victim of a a miscarriage of justice. We've been maybe falsely accused of something that we we didn't do. Even young children understand the idea of uh, being unfair, even if it's often related to them not getting what they want. But on a more serious level, when someone's convicted of a crime they didn't do, the consequences can be pretty devastating. One of the worst miscarriages of justice um, uh, I've come across in this country is that of Sally Clark. You may remember her story back in 1999. She had two children, uh, both of whom died of cop death. And if the grief of that loss was not enough, she was convicted of their murder. Uh, she was sentenced to life imprisonment on the basis of a, uh, an ex- expert witness testimony that was later discredited. But going to prison as a convicted child killer, she was also a solicitor, she was the daughter of a police officer, you can imagine what life in prison would have been like for her. When the verdict was finally overturned and she was released, she turned to alcohol to cope with her grief and her trauma, which led to her death a couple of years later. Well, this morning we're looking at the worst ever miscarriage of justice, when the Son of God himself would come to earth in human form and lived a a perfect 
life that no one else has ever lived since. Experienced the excruciating pain of a, a Roman flogging, was humiliated, and without a fair trial was sentenced to the worst form of execution imaginable, crucifixion. The big question it raises, though, is if Jesus was God, then why didn't he free himself? Why did he allow himself to be killed and a convicted criminal to go free instead? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in our series on the journey to the cross leading up to, to Easter. And before we get into the passage uh, this morning, chapter 19, there's a brief recap of where we've got to last week, if you weren't here. Uh, you may remember that the, the Jews handed Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pilate, because according to Roman law, um, they were not able to execute anyone themselves. And they wanted Jesus dead. The reason they wanted him dead was that they were afraid he would cause an uprising, that the Romans would put down, and they would lose everything they had. Well, in Pilate's questioning of Jesus, uh, he asks them directly whether he is the king of the Jews, that the Jews uh, have said that he's claiming to be. And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world, but I came to testify to the truth. The truth that he is the promised king, who has come to proclaim the truth about God and salvation and eternity, the truth about his kingdom. And his followers, he says, are those who listen to him and believe in him. Well, Pilate, of course, is a bit of a politician. He probably doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. But he doesn't see him as a political, da- political danger. He doesn't see him as a revolutionary. So at the end of chapter 18, we're told that Pilate went out to the Jews and he said to them, I find no basis for a charge against him. But he says, it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? We probably think this would get him off his hands. But unfortunately for Pilate, it doesn't quite work out that way because the Jews shout back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas is described as someone who's taken part in an uprising. So what's Pilate going to do now? Well, let's pick up the story at the beginning of uh, chapter 19, if you've got your Bibles handy. And here we're told in verse 1 that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And it's easy to read those words and just skip over it onto the next bit. But if you do come and watch the film, The Passion of the Christ, uh, next Friday evening, you will realize that a Roman flogging was a pretty brutal affair. Passion, in that context, means uh, suffering. It's the suffering of the Christ. And it's that scene in particular which probably makes the film a certificate 18. Unsuitable for anyone who's faint-hearted, because uh, the whip would have had three strands, weighted with lead balls or or bones which would tear open the flesh and cause, sometimes even cause death. Its purpose wasn't just to cause pain, but to humiliate. And if that wasn't enough humiliation, we're told here, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Now these are not the sort of thorns that might scratch your head when you have a fight with a hedge in the back garden. 
These are like nails that dig deep into his skull. Again and again, we're told the soldiers went up to him, they mocked him, and they slapped him. But if Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent, then why does he order him to be flogged in this way? Or maybe he thinks it will satisfy the Jews so they don't feel they actually need to go through with the full execution. And Pilate's conscience can be clear. And so the next time Pilate goes out to the Jews, he brings Jesus out as well. And you can imagine what state he would have been in. And Pilate says, here is the man. He may have claimed to be a king, but he's clearly just a man. Hopefully you'll be happy that justice has been done. Well, that was a ploy. Clearly it doesn't work because they were told in verse 6 that as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. They won't be happy until he's dead. All we see in the rest of the chapter is that Jesus is innocent but chooses to give up his life. Pilate answers the Jews, you take him and crucify him. And for the third time he says, I find no basis for a charge against him. In other words, this man is innocent. And that innocence is not just recognized by Pilate. Um, In Matthew's gospel, we're told that Pilate's wife sent him a message saying this. She said, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. The thief on the cross, who the the, the children will be looking at uh, this morning, says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. After Jesus died, we're told the Roman centurion responsible for his crucifixion praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was an innocent man. Going back to chapter 19, the Jewish leaders say to Pilate, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. His crime, according to them, is blasphemy. They don't consider him to be innocent because he's claimed to be God. And in their eyes, he cannot be both. What they fail to consider is that his claim may actually be true. He may be a human, and he may also be God. At this point, we're told in verse 8 that Pilate was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Maybe he sees something different in Jesus. This is not just any old man. He said his kingdom is not of this world. He is claimed to be the son of God. Who is he dealing with here? This is not a simple criminal he can just get rid of. And so he asks them, where do you come from? But we're told Jesus gave him no answer. He remains silent. Fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah had made many hundreds of years before when he said this, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Which, uh, But Jesus' silence winds Pilate up. So he says to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to, to free you or crucify you? 
At which point Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. He's saying the only reason you're standing in the position you're in, the only reason you're inflicting this punishment on me is because my father has allowed it. He has even ordained it. As it says in Romans 13, there is no authority except that which God has established. And so Jesus continues, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He's referring to Caiaphas, the uh, representative of the Jewish nation. He claims to be a leader of God's people, a teacher of God's word. Please fail to see the fulfillment of that prophecy of a Messiah right in front of his eyes in the form of Jesus himself. Where we're told in verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders have outsmarted him. And they play their trump card. They say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. They know Pilate's weak spot. If he gets back to Rome, that he's allowed a rebel challenging the authority of Rome to go free, he might lose his job, he might even lose his life. But when he heard this, we're told Pilate brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judge's seat. The trial is over. Verse 14 says, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And the ironic thing here is that the one who sits in the judge's seat, the one who claimed he had the power to either free Jesus or crucify him, doesn't actually have the power to set him free, even though that's the right thing to do. He knows Jesus is innocent. He wants to set him free, but he's unable to do so. So why is that? Or is it because um, the Jewish leaders are so powerful or so smart Well, no, ultimately it's because Jesus is in control. He chose to give up his life. He chose to die even though he's innocent. That doesn't take away the guilt of the Jewish leaders or the guilt of Pilate, but it enables God's will to be done. Later on, after Jesus had been raised to life, after he descended to to heaven to be with his fathers, one of the apostles, Peter, uh, said to the crowd of Jews gathered on the day of Pentecost, he said this, This man, talking about Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, you're all guilty of killing an innocent man, but it was part of God's deliberate plan. That doesn't mean to say that God the Father wouldn't have wept at what his son had to go through. Just like any human parent would weep if they saw their child having to suffer. That grief for a human parent would be bad enough if their child's pain was self-inflicted. 
It's far worse when their child suffers without having done anything wrong, when they're unjustly treated. God understands what we are feeling when we are the victims of injustice. Because Jesus was a victim of injustice himself. He could have done something about it. But in his perfect wisdom, according to his perfect plan, he chose not to. Which I hope will be an encouragement to us when we we don't quite understand why God doesn't do something about the injustice that we are going through. We will all one day receive justice. Justice will be done when Jesus comes again. But when we experience injustice in this life or humiliation, it does help us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. As I prayed right at the beginning, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When we suffer, we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. It's a privilege to suffer as Jesus did because it helps us to know him better. But it still leads to the question, well, why would the almighty, holy, eternal God, the one who reigns over the universe, allow his son Jesus to be humiliated by a bunch of pathetic human beings that he has created? Well, the answer is that Jesus chose to give up his life to save the lives of the guilty. In the film, The uh, Last Full Measure, tells the story of um, a guy called William Pitzenbarger. He was a U.S. Air Force uh, para-rescueman who took part in 300 rescue missions in the Vietnam War. Personally saved over 60 men during a particular rescue mission in April Um, 1966, Pitts, as he was called, chose to leave the relative safety of his helicopter and descend on a winch to to aid some wounded soldiers under heavy fire in what became one of the bloodiest battles of that war. Uh, After saving many soldiers by dealing with their wounds and getting them onto stretchers and winched up into the helicopter, he was told to leave on the last helicopter, but he chose to say sacrificing his own life to save and defend the soldiers in that battle. He was only 21. The title of the film comes from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln honoured the fallen, saying that they gave the last full measure of devotion. Most of those Air Force pararescue men were happy to to try and save the lives of, of others. But when it came to a choice between their own life and that of others, they would put their own safety first. Which is why when we hear stories like this of William Pitzenbarger, it's moving, it's humbling to think that someone would sacrifice their life to save the lives of others. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Whereas Pitzenbarger went down from a helicopter into the jungle to save the physical lives of his fellow countrymen, Jesus gave up the glory of heaven to come down to earth in human form. And he gave up his life to save the souls of humankind. We're going back to the passage. It ends with the words, finally, Pilate handed him over to them. 
to be crucified. Sentence has been passed. The innocent one, Jesus, is to be punished by death. And the guilty one, who deserves death, Barabbas, is released and is given new life. In one sense, we are all Barabbas. We are all guilty of failing to acknowledge that Jesus is king of the universe, of wanting to be king of our lives, thinking we know better than God. We constantly fall short of God's perfect standards. We deserve his punishment. But in one of the most wonderful passages of the Bible, which um, uh, Nathan shared earlier, Romans 5, says this, just starting a couple of verses beforehand. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is not just about to be executed, he's about to be sacrificed. He's choosing to give up his life to save the lives of the guilty ones, each, each one of us. Just as Pitzenbarger substituted himself into the battle and died instead of those soldiers whose lives were saved as they were freed from the battle, so Jesus substituted himself for us. He took the punishment we deserved so our lives would be saved. But if Jesus' substitution is to be valid for the whole of humankind, he has to be two things. First of all, he has to be perfectly innocent. And with regard to his innocence before Jesus came, God um, instituted a temporary sacrificial system to, to deal with people's sins, to make them right with him. It involved the sacrifice of an animal, like a lamb. A lamb had to be without defect, without blemish, a perfect lamb. And when God was rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, he, he slaughtered the firstborn, but spared the lives. He passed over the homes of those who had sacrificed a lamb and put the blood around the door frames of their houses. When Jesus came as the final sacrifice, the Passover lamb, he too had to be without blemish, which is why Pilate three times says he is innocent. That's why that is so important. Because not only is our guilt taken away through Jesus' death, his innocence, his righteousness is imputed to us. In Colossians 1 we read this. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Each one of us can be considered innocent in God's eyes. Our guilt, our shame can be wiped away. Just as Barabbas was not really innocent, but was set free as if he was innocent, so we too can be set free. Jesus had to be perfectly innocent. And secondly, he had to be fully human because he's represented humankind. And so he lived a human life. He suffered a human flogging. He suffered a human death. Pilate said, here is the man. As a result of 
His bravery and sacrifice, Pitts and Marga, I mentioned, was awarded the highest medal achievable in the U.S., the Medal of Honor. It took 32 years for, for him to receive his medal posthumously as a result of the efforts of his parents and of his uh, fellow uh, war partners. As the Air Force uh, Secretary presented the medal to his parents, uh, he acknowledged the lives of everyone there in that room on that day had in some way been influenced by Pitzenbarger's actions. He said, this is the power of what one person can do. Jesus was one person, but the impact of what he did had far greater power because it was sufficient to save the whole of humankind. We're not told what Barabbas did after his life was spared and he was set free. We're told that when Jesus set free other people, maybe from blindness, when he made them see, when he set them free from demon possession, when he set them free from addiction to money, they gave up their lives to follow him. We heard the other night from Grant how God spared his life. He, he set him free. And how he's now using his freedom to tell other addicts about how God can set them free. As we finish, Jesus was perfectly innocent, but chose to give up his life. So we, the guilty, can go free. His gift forgiveness is a free gift that is available for everybody. So if you haven't received it, will you receive it this Easter? All you need to do is say, look, Jesus, I know I've done wrong. I want to be forgiven. I thank you that what you did for me on the cross was enough to forgive me. Please forgive me and restore me to you. doesn't matter what you've done or how guilty you feel. Jesus can make you clean through the shedding of his blood. What about if you have already accepted his gift of forgiveness, you are enjoying the freedom he offers? How much do you appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you? If Pitzenberg had not lowered himself into that battle, many men would have died. For the rest of their lives, they were grateful to him. If Jesus had not come down to earth, if he had not chosen to give up his life for us, we would still be dead in our sins with no life to look forward to after this one. How will you express your gratitude to him? He doesn't expect you to repay the debt. That would be impossible for, for us to do. But we can show our gratitude by trusting him, by obeying him, by standing up for him, by saying, I am unashamed to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to be humiliated and suffer for Christ as he was humiliated and as he suffered for you? And remember that when you do suffer, when you do experience injustice, you can rejoice because it's bringing you closer to Jesus. It's making you more like him. Let me finish again with those words from Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect on what we've heard and give you a chance to to speak to God. Father God, we thank you for that amazing truth that you demonstrated your love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you for that. We can't fully understand why he should want to. But we are eternally grateful because it's given us freedom. It's given us forgiveness. It's given us peace. It's made us right with you. And it's given us hope for the future. We thank you for that wonderful gift. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, That does bring us uh, to the end of our service uh, this morning. My prayer is that uh, the Lord met with you this morning, that he spoke uh, to you and that your hearts have been greatly encouraged as you've journeyed through uh, the service. Uh, Please do uh, wrestle with those uh, questions that uh, Neil posed. Do you want to respond to that gift that Christ holds out? And how joyful are we in our hearts for those of us who believe of what the Lord has done for us. So to close, let's, uh, let's return to uh, those words that have been an echo uh, throughout our whole service this morning uh, from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.